0: The scripture reading today comes from Revelation chapter 21. A very unique book, uh, the only one of its kind in the entire Bible. I'm going to be reading from verses 1 through 27. Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 27. <clears throat> then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning, or crying, or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. He who overcomes will inherit all this, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning silver. This is the second death. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues Came and said to me, Come, and I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a mountain great and high, and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God, and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall, with twelve gates, and with twelve angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the twelve tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, and three on the west. The wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates, and its walls. The city was laid out like a square, as long as it was wide. He measured the city with a rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length and as wide and high as it is long. He measured its wall, and it was 144 cubits thick by man's measurement, which the angel was using. The wall was made of jasper and a city of pure gold as pure as glass. The foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprace, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. Whew. The twelve gates were twelve pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. The great street of the city was of pure gold, like transparent glass." I did not see a temple in the city, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the land's book of life. And this is God's word. Amen. Revelation was written uh, at the end of the first century. Uh, It was written to people at the end of the first century who weren't facing a pandemic um, but they suffered because they lived in a society that was against Christian values. And uh, by giving us a glimpse of the ultimate destination of a Christian, the new city, he gives us, the author is giving us a strength in many ways to handle life in this city that we live in today, in these circumstances, in the context of suffering And the author gives us four lessons here that we can find, four lessons that the knowledge of heaven can give us uh, power and strength to live in our world today. One, it gives us meaning. Two, power. Three, a vision. Four, well, a way to get in. Meaning, power, vision, and a way to get in. First, we're going to look at meaning. Verses one to two, um, heaven is a city of God coming down out of heaven right? Heaven is a city of God coming down out of heaven. First, what that means is heaven comes down. Now, I always thought growing up that heaven was about people rising and escaping the earth, but the text says that the city of God actually comes down. You see, if it's about escaping earth, then our present reality, life as we know it, has no real meaning. But if heaven is a city coming down, then what you do how you live right now, it matters. The second thing you see here is that heaven is a city coming down. Now, it's very important because Genesis chapter 1 begins with what? A garden. It was perfect. But because of our sin, salvation is not God restoring this garden, bringing us back into a garden, but taking us to a city. Having the city of God come down, why is that important? Because unlike a garden, a city is what? A city is a central place of knowledge, a central place of scholarship and commerce, arts, competition, music. So the city is filled with scholars and craftsmen, businessmen, artists and merchants, musicians, athletes, and it's incredibly diverse. There are people from every tribe and language and tongue. In other words, where the city goes, the culture goes. Where the city goes, society goes. In fact, 50% of the world now is, is thriving in the midst of the biggest cities, the largest cities of the world, because where the city goes, culture follows. You see, what the author is trying to tell us is that on one hand, if you ever longed to live a life that you never had, that you never got to enjoy, the author is saying it's coming. In fact, it's coming down. On the other hand, it means that your work, your life, Your decisions, the way you handle suffering, the way you handle people around you, right now, it has meaning. On one hand, because God has called you to do the work that you're doing, for instance, those of you who are working, you honor God when you reflect the character of God in your work, when you're committed to integrity, when you're committed to honesty, when you're committed to kindness, not stepping all over people to get ahead, you see? God has called you there, and so no matter how menial or unsatisfying or how fulfilling and important it is, there's a dignity to your work that warrants integrity and honesty by applying the character of God in it. But on the other hand, God has called you there, and so not only are you reflecting the character of God, part of that character is his creativity. It's a communicable attribute of God. It's something that can be transferred to us. We can be creative because we serve a God who's creative, and by committing to do your job then with excellence, by working hard without making work an end in itself, you are living out and applying a city that is coming with the creativity and the character of God. Do your job well with excellence. You're going to be shape- in the city, you're going to be shaping and cultivating pe- uh, life as a redeemed person, and that means that you're going to do that here, right here in this world. Martin Luther says this. He says, a Christian shoemaker does his duty not by putting little crosses on his shoes but by making good shoes because God is interested in good craftsmanship. Right now, you may be at war with your work, but you see, work existed before sin ever even entered the world. That means that work existed before there was pain and before there was suffering. You are at war with your work because of sin and not only sin in general, but your own specific sin combined. In heaven, there will be work and it will be redeemed and it will be satisfying and it will be fulfilling and it will be thriving and fruitful. Knowing that at the end of every day, you can look at what you've left undone and you can say, my work does not define me. And you can look at everything that you've accomplished, everything that you have done, and you can say, but that doesn't define me either. Because Jesus Christ finished the ultimate work, the ultimate labor on the cross, one that, something that I couldn't accomplish on my own. And so you can look at your work the way God looked at creation all the way back in Genesis chapter 1. Day after day, He's creating things. And as He's creating, as He's exercising this incredible character, this attribute of God, what He does is He looks back at what He's done and He says, I am satisfied. It is good. I am deeply satisfied. So don't just dwell on how hard your work is. That's why we get selfish, that's why we're anxious. That's why we're jealous and why we crave approval from other people. You need to remember that before you build something visible in your office, you're contributing to an eternal city. There's meaning in your work. Now, some of us, we've messed up at work. Some of us, we've messed up our careers. Most of the world hates their job and hates their career. But if you think about it, every present moment in this city, in this city, is more meaningful. And every past experience is redeemable if you live in the ultimate city, the ultimate destination today. Meaning. Second thing we see here is that there's power. In verse 4, the author says that Jesus will wipe away every tear from our eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. You see, at the cross of Jesus, there was death, there was mourning, there was crying, there was pain. But the author is saying that it will be no more. If you're a Christian, death and mourning and, and crying and pain have an expiration date. You may be experiencing those, those things on a cyclical level, cyclical basis, regularly in your life. And yet it still has an expiration date. That was the old order, it has passed. He will wipe away every tear. That means you can pray your tears, you can pray your fears, you can pray your pain. You can pray your anger. You can go to God with these things. God is literally storing these things up, and Jesus will wipe them away with his own hands. In verse 7, because Jesus defeated death, there's a victory. And so you are an inheritor of that victory. You are sons, the text says. We are all sons. We are all kings in heaven. In verse 8, the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the immoral, the sorcerers, the the lies, they're all gone. What does that mean? The new Jerusalem is going to be a safe place. It's going to be a place of healing. It's going to be a city that's redeemed, restored. Everything that you've ever lost will be found. Everything that you ever longed for that was sinful will be there, will be present, will be yours. And because we don't leave this broken reality, we don't escape it, but God himself comes down, he will heal it. Everything that's broken will become undone by the hands of this healing king. In Genesis chapter 1, you see the unrestricted presence of God. So there was this void, there was nothingness, and then all of a sudden there's light. God says, let there be light. And day by day, he integrates the world, light, night day, sky, water, land, creation, life. And that's what happens. When God is at the center, creation has uh, an, an integration power, an integrated power. But when God is pushed out of the center, which is what we, that's what sin is. Sin is pushing God out of the center of our lives. There is a disintegration. That's what takes place. There's death. There's mourning. There's crying. There's pain. Because of our sin, what was integrated became disintegrated. But that's the old order. That's what has passed away. Death has died on the cross of Christ because of the victory that he has earned for us. Verse 5, you see, there's this throne where the king sits. And the throne is where the king sits and where he judges. And the king says, behold, I'm making all things new. So there's judgment But then there's restoration. There's judgment, but then there's recovery. There's judgment, but there's also renewal. Up until verse 5, what do you see? It's all promises. He will dwell, they will be His. He will wipe away every tear. There will be no more death. But then, verse 5, there's present tense I am making all things new. He's doing that now. What does that mean? Yes, we're suffering. Yes, you may be isolated. Yes, there's lots of pain. Yes, there's crying today. But God, he didn't say that when you become a Christian, there's no more crying. He's saying that when you have a glimpse and when you trust and cling to the hope of what is not yet here because of what you already have, this treasure in your, you know, the Apostle Paul says this treasure in these fragile jars of clay. That's what you are. then God is working, present tense, he is working through that suffering, through your tears, to bring about a beauty, to bring about a joy, to bring about a newness that's enhanced by your suffering. In other words, your suffering is being put to work to make your joy increase. That although the enemy may be using suffering to hurt you and bring you down, the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians says, I may be struck down, but I will not be destroyed. Why? Because God will use, work through that brokenness to increase and enhance my joy. God is saying that I am working through your current brokenness and there are lots of broken people. Our city is broken. Our nation is fragmented, broken in so many different levels. Personally, right now, we are broken physically relationally our jobs are broken financially we may be broken socially i mean the pandemic has done so much to fragment and atomize our society in many ways god is saying that i'm working through this current brokenness you have persistent guilt are you suffering because of loss or isolation or illness or persecution attack god is present with you he's you're never alone and he's working right now through those tears it doesn't mean all your pain is going to be resolved today he will wipe away that's the promise but the promise is underlying that promise is a reality that god is working he is at work and when he is sometimes when he feels most absent is when he is most present there is a not yet coming But God is working right now. God has worked through the brokenness of Jesus to bring about a complete and ultimate final healing, salvation. And if he can do that through the ultimate darkness, where the enemy was most at work, he can do that through your darkness, through your brokenness. Your brokenness is only temporary, that means. And that should give you poise. And that should give you strength. That should give you power. Verse 3, God is ours and we will be his. That's family language. In the Bible, that's family language. That means you're never alone. That means you're always a son. You are not abandoned. You are not disowned. That should give you poise. That should give you strength and power. One day, all wrongdoing will be overturned. The king sits on the throne. That means he is judging and renewing at the same time. That means that all injustice will be brought to justice. So you don't have to cling to the fact that there's so much injustice today. And you should, although you make it a mission in many ways uh, to to heal the injustice, you will not be so discouraged and destroyed because injustice seems to rule. All injustice will be brought to justice. There will be no more recessions. There'll be no more division because of race or class or education. We're not going to worry. You don't have to worry about tomorrow, about, about disease or about the environment. There's no jealousy. There's no covetousness. There's no malice. You're not going to wake up and complain of a broken back or a hurt back. You see that? That's the old order. And it's not only passing away, it is past. If you believe this, you will speak up for justice in this city. You will speak up against the the horrors of the environment that we are creating. You're going to speak up against division and against the malice that you see in the city. You see that? But you're not going to let a lack of injustice or this broken environment or the divisions, or the malice of the city ruin you because the old order is passing and has passed. There's poise in the midst of brokenness and suffering. There's power in the midst of weakness and brokenness and suffering. Now, the third thing we see here is vision. We have vision. Verse 11, heaven shines with the glory of God. That means that everything reflects the glory of God. Everything is magnifying the worth of God. That means that everything you do, everything you say, everything you're thinking honors God. Just by doing the work that you do in heaven will honor God. It will be fruitful and it will thrive with the character of God and the creativity of God. And there will be a joy that's enhanced by your suffering of the past. And you will be honoring God. And yet you can live that reality today in your work, in your life. In heaven, our bodies are going to be made new. A lot of us hate our bodies. A lot of us hate the way we look today. But one day, you will be made utterly beautiful with eternal bodies. And yet, you're going to be without sin, without fear, without addiction, without idols, without selfishness, without anxiety, without sickness. Can you imagine a life without any of these things, without sadness, without anger, without pride? Most of everything that we see in the latter part of this chapter, what do you see? There are real things on earth, gold, pearls, precious stones. Yet, well, why does the author say that? Why does the author give us that? On one hand, he wants us to have a vision of heaven. He wants us to have a vision of heaven. And on one hand, God wants us to imagine what heaven is like, but he wants us to, give us, he wants us to have a biblical vision, a tangible biblical vision, so that heaven doesn't seem paler than earth so that you don't cling to the beauty of earth as an end in itself. He wants you to have that, so that we don't cling to our looks. We don't cling to our bodies. We don't cling to others' looks and their bodies and their figures. We don't cling to our salaries. He wants us to imagine what heaven is like with a biblical vision in a tangible way, so that heaven does not seem paler than earth. But on the other hand, God uses imagery, incredible imagery, metaphors, Basically to tell us that there's no way that you can describe in words what heaven is like to show us that heaven is a greater city than anyone can imagine. It's going to be like earth on one hand. That's why you see the gold and the pearls. You see gates. These are tangible realities that we have on earth. And yet heaven will be an infinitely greater city. So you go to verses 12 to 17. That's what the author is talking about when he mentions all these dimensions of heaven. I mean, you're trying to get you wrap your arm around the size and the immensity, the grandeur of heaven. The author wants us to take essentially earthly things. He even says he's using man's measurement because he wants us to take earthly things, but then he wants you to heighten it and intensify it in a way to broaden your view of heaven to a degree where your mind explodes into worship. That's what he's trying to do. So verse 16, look at the length of the city. It's 12,000 stadia as long as it is high as it is wide. Whenever you have something where the length equals the height, I mean, we got a lot of Asians here watching, so they're good at math, right, geometry. What, when you have something that's as long as it is high, as it is wide, what do you have? What is that? It's a cube. What else in the Bible is a cube? Inside the temple, you have the Holy of Holies. The entire city is the Holy of Holies, the dwelling place of God, where on earth, it was just a man-made structure where the high priest, one person could enter one time a year. But First Peter chapter 2 says, you are a holy nation, a royal priesthood. That means that in heaven, we are all kings and we are all priests. We are living and dwelling with God in his dwelling place. We all share in the inheritance of God. We all have a name because we are kings. We all have a name, the incredible lineage of sons of God. Notice he doesn't say sons and daughters because daughters in that era had no significance. They had no value. In fact, were, when you had a daughter, you would sigh. In some places throughout history, you would sacrifice your daughters. So that what, what the author is saying here is that in heaven, everyone, you could be an outcast, promiscuous, broken, sexually and financially poor, impoverished orphan woman, and you would be a son and a prince in heaven. That's what that means. In heaven, we're all kings and priests. We all have a name. We all have a place as God's sons, but we're also priests. We are continually in the presence of God. Verses 17 to 21, the author wants you to have a biblical view of heaven. So you take earth, and then you magnify it. You take earth, and then you heighten it. You take earth, and you broaden it. You take earth, and intensify it. You take the earth, and you restore it to a degree that is unprecedented on earth, to a degree that you can't imagine in a way that would just blow your mind to the point of worship. So these gates are made of pearls, but then each gate is made of a single pearl. Imagine the size of that pearl. Imagine the oyster that birthed that pearl. Is the author just trying to win us to a future wealth? a future prosperity? If not, then why would he broaden our vision? And the reason is because we are so distracted. Our vision is so distracted. When you're worried, what are you doing? Your fears are broadening and heightening and magnifying and intensifying your imagination to a degree that blows your mind. This is going to ruin me. This is going to end me. That's the distraction. So the author is reminding us that heaven, he's calling us to a heavenly courage. Why? Because courage is also based on broadening and heightening your view, your imagination, except with courage, in this kind of courage, heavenly courage, biblical and godly courage is rooted in a reality Fears are not rooted in reality. There may be real components, but it's an imagination that is usually much greater than the reality. When you are afraid, you are over-indexed on your current reality and under-indexed. You are underestimating the ultimate reality, but in heaven, verse 22, there is a light that is greater than any other light. There is a king that's greater than any other king. There is a love that's greater than any lover that you could have. There is a name greater than any reputation you can earn. If you trust that, it's gonna take the fear and bring it it down to size. It's gonna take pressure off of your expectations in your current life or in your current work. By the way, this is the only way that you can enjoy the things of earth without being controlled or destroyed by the things on earth. You have to look to the new city and delight in that city more because at the center of it is a relationship with our king, a relationship with our God, our father, one who is our father that is filled with delight because we are coming home. You see that? Now the dwelling place of God is with men and he will live with them. How do you get there? How do you get in? What is the prerequisite? Because the Bible here, the text here, doesn't say that the good people get it. That's what it sounds like in the beginning when you read like verses seven and eight. But the text isn't saying that the good get it or the people who work hard get it. Verse six, he says, to him who is thirsty, I will give. In other words, all you need to do is need it. Pride says, I gotta earn it. But the gospel says, I receive it. We need to say, Lord, I want this beauty in my life, not on the basis of my goodness, but on the basis of Jesus's goodness, not on the basis of my record, but on the basis of Jesus's record, not on the basis of my merit, but on the basis of Jesus' merit. Jesus Christ is therefore beautiful, more beautiful than any other glory or beauty that I could see or find or discover on earth. How does Jesus become that beautiful to us? More beautiful than any other beauty on earth. On the cross, Jesus Christ cries out, I am thirsty. It's not just a physical thirst. It's a cosmic thirst because in that moment, the wrath of God is pouring out on Jesus as a penalty for our sins. And so he's not only longing for it physically, but he's longing for the love of God. He's thirsting after the one thing, the relationship that is going to move him. And it is his glory. It is his center. And yet he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me i've been abandoned i've been rejected i've been disowned so that, so that his people god's people could become sons jesus christ the king he came down from heaven that means that the kingdom the city walks with him it is at hand it is here and so you see him he's healing people there are miracles the reason why these miracles they were not really special they were just really taking things in the natural world that were broken, and Jesus Christ is restoring them. Why? Because that is exactly what heaven will do when it comes down and and subsumes this city that we live in today. He's reversing the curse of sin, and so he's working to restore the city. That's why we are called to work to restore the city, and yet do you know Jesus Christ, the cross was outside the city, Jesus Christ was crucified outside the city. He was cast out. And when he was forsaken by God, he had left heaven, and he was kicked out of the earthly city, and then God himself had abandoned them. He was completely and utterly alone. Cast out of the city of Jerusalem. Cast out of the new city. And he died so that his people will be brought into the new Jerusalem and live forever. On the cross, what do you see? Jesus Christ is laboring, and he's working, and he's sweating. And everybody around him is telling him this life that you're living is meaningless. There is nothing, there's nothing, there's no meaning in what you're doing right now. So come down if you're truly the son of God. make Do something meaningful. Be something meaningful. On the cross, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the Hebrew doublet. Whenever you see the Hebrew doublet, my God, my God, it means that he's crying. There's emotional content there. There's emotional intensity. He's weeping. He's crying. And yet there was no one to wipe his tears. And so there was mourning, and it was crying, and it was pain, and it was death. Our sin, our suffering, has an expiration date because Jesus' life expired. He died. He was denied life. On the cross, his body was torn apart, but his soul was torn apart. He, he was disintegrated from the Father so that we could be reconciled to the Father. And so Jesus Christ lost the city so that we could have the eternal city. And yet, do you know that in the midst of all this pain and suffering and disintegration, he was reciting Psalm 22, which begins with, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was literally living it. He was literally placing his life into the text of Scripture. And that text ends with praise. In other words, Jesus Christ, in his suffering, there was poise. And it was power. He was worshiping on the cross. He was delighting in the Father, even as he was being forsaken by the Father. And in his darkest moment, he still trusted and delighted in the promise of God so that the Father would delight in you. Stop over-indexing on building the earthly city, your kingdom, for yourself that will never give you poise. It will only result in anxiety and, and depression and suffering, alienation from others, stepping over other people to get ahead. Do you see that? There is no amount of wealth or, or career, no career or relationship that will give you poise in the face of extreme and ultimate suffering and death. Jesus Christ had a vision for the city of God. He turns to this criminal who says, remember me. He says, today you will be with me in paradise. That's what he said. And if you make his vision for the city your vision, you will know that this world is a mere prelude, an appetizer to the glory of the ultimate city of heaven. And so you will love this city. You will embrace this city. You will serve and work in the city. You will be excellent in the city. You will be a great citizen in the city. You will speak out for injustices in the city, all as a part of doing the healing work of Christ that he began. You know, the book of Luke begins with Jesus Christ doing work on earth. But Luke also wrote the book of Acts, which is really detailing what Jesus Christ did after he departed through the people that he has called. And where did they go? They were moved out into the cities of the world, the great cities in their day. Godly ambition, forsaking Wealth, forsaking power, forsaking good reputations, forsaking great lineages and pedigrees, inviting persecution, inviting suffering, even greater suffering, inviting death because of their great vision of the heavenly city that was before them. Will you make that city your city? Will you make that citizenship your citizenship so you will be even better citizens here on earth? and yet working with a godly ambition to serve until Jesus returns. Let's pray.